believe that we have to be dictated. We will probably wrestle with things until we go to be with the Lord, but I don't believe that we have to be dictated by these things. And my prayer is that as God's people, we can walk in a greater level of freedom. Amen? Amen. Thank you for those couple. But once again, we're looking at specific areas that I think can affect us all, or we know people that are dealing with these things. Maybe you've seen these things in your family. Week one, we looked at bitterness. Second week, we focused on anger. Last week, we looked at worry. And here's the key passage I'm going to put up there again. This is a passage that I regularly pray over myself and my family. And you see what the writer says. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's, he's reminding us of eternity. He's saying there is a promise, because when we even talk about God's story, there's a promise not just for this life. It's not over when we stop living this life. In fact, it's, in a lot of ways, we've just begun. And he says, since we're surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what I've been focusing on in these four weeks is the, those sins that easily entangle our feet and keep us from running the way we need to run. He says, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, that word perseverance, endurance, to, to, to keep fighting the fight of faith. That's what Paul told Timothy. He said, I have fought a good fight. So he didn't try to candy coat the Christian walk. He said, I fought a good fight. It was a fight, but I kept the faith. And the writer here is telling us that with perseverance, run. But there's going to be opportunities for our feet to get entangled. And it would be just like if you were, you know, if you're running a race and something getting tangled in your feet, it, you're going to either fall or you're going to be hindered from running. And here's that key, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. A lot of times we get tangled up is because we take our eyes off him. And, 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 and somewhat of a simple way is, is God help us to understand how we can get our eyes back on Jesus every day. So he talks about the sin that so easily entangles. Again, these are, uh, one translation calls them besetting sins or those nagging sins that trip us up. Um, my nagging sins may not be yours, and yours may not be mine. We could share some, but we all have those weaknesses. We all have those things that the enemy tries to play on. And then he just says, in this passage, cast them aside, throw them off. And I've, I've asked that question, God, how does that work? How do, what does that look like? How do we, it makes it sound, the writer makes it sound so easy that we just, oh, that's tripping me up. Let's just sling that off real quick. How do we get victory in those areas? How do we throw them off? How do we live life not dictated by those things? So today we're going to look at addiction. If you haven't noticed, we live in a very addicted culture, don't we? Listen to some of these stats. I've got these from United Families International. It's a good resource. But every second, that's second, 28,252 are looking at porn on the internet. Every minute, $184,500 is spent downloading pornography. Every minute. 50% of men are addicted to porn. It's not just a man thing. 60% of women struggle with some sort of lust. It's, it sometimes can manifest differently like 50 shades of gray. If you're not familiar with that. 
It's a novel really wildly popular among women, very sexually charged. The average credit card debt for, this is non-essential frivolous debt, not investment debt. I understand that there's a difference. People have to make investment debt. These are non-essential frivolous debt. The average is per family is $8,000 per family in the United States. One out of every eight people are addicted to alcohol. Kids average four hours of television per day. Four hours. 63% of men and women in the United States are not at a healthy weight. But addictions aren't just sexual or chemical issues. When we hear the word addiction, immediately what we do is we, we run to those thoughts of addiction to uh, you know, chemical, alcohol, drugs, and, and those are very real. And maybe we have people in our lives or people that we know that deal with that. My family, in my family, um, generations, um, alcohol addiction and drug addiction is, is very, very real. My mom grew up in a very, very dysfunctional alcoholic family. And when I'm talking about these besetting sins or these, these things that trip you up, she, she knew that if she didn't do something different, that she could have ran into that addiction as well. And I thank God, I thank God for my mom every day who stood and said, it stops here. And she surrendered her life to Christ and raised us in a, a, a home that loves God. And, you know, they weren't perfect, but they, 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 they raised us to love and honor God, and it stopped with her, and I, and I saw a lot of her siblings, a lot of my family that sh still struggle with that stuff. But it's not just those sexual chemical issues. People are addicted to work. Workaholics, people are, are addicted to fitness or working out or sports. Now, again, not that these things are wrong in and of themselves, but I'm, I'm talking about an addiction to them. And I'll... I'll, I'll make the distinction in a moment, but maybe mindless computer time, just sitting there for hours and hours, gaming. There are now rehab centers for people with gaming addictions. You know, and a lot of young people, teenagers, they think that they're going to keep it just in their teenage years. But a, pro a lot of problems is you have now these, these kids that have grown up, now they're 30s and 40s, and they're, and they're husbands and fathers, and they're still addicted to games. Some people are addicted to gadgets. Maybe those, some of those things are, are, are the not so obvious. Like people, some people are addicted to complaining. They just find something negative about everything. It's just an, an addiction. It just, it's like they've gotten into this pattern and this rhythm of life where they're just addicted to complaining. Some people's addiction are people. They're addicted to people. So sometimes they, they have maybe pushed off an addiction to something else, and then they, they will grab hold of people, and they treat them almost like a life preserver, and they'll push them under the water, and they're just trying to stay afloat, and they, just, they need people around them all the time. Some people are addicted to control. There's many other ones that we can maybe list. There are some who realize they are addicted. I mean, sometimes people just, they understand that they are addicted, but others don't know because it has begun, become so ingrained in their lives. It's just become a part of who they are, and they don't even realize they're addicted. I shared a while back that 
when we were first married, I, married, I had a, I had an addiction to sports. I was either watching or playing something almost all the time. I mean, I would go from league to league and, you know, softball to basketball to, you know, other things. And then I'd come home and I would watch games that didn't matter. And, you know, I, I shared this story about myself. But, you know, I'd watch, you know, ESPN, there would be a baseball game or something. My wife would think like, oh, is that the Dodgers playing? I'm a Dodgers fan. Sorry. Go ahead and confess that. She's like, are the Dodgers playing? I'm like, no. And it's just two teams that don't, they don't really even matter. And they're both not even close to getting in the playoffs. And I'm just watching it because it's on. So I didn't realize I, you know, I just, it was just ingrained in me. And I was, you know, this little bit of escapism into something just to do. And it can happen. Some are addicted and don't know how to get free. Others are addicted, but they think that they aren't, while everyone around them sees that they are. Some will argue that they have, you know, I've got this under control. If you've ever done an intervention or you've seen somebody that's addicted and they are resistant to the idea, some people say, you know, maybe that's a problem. No, I'm under control. I've got this under control. I've got this. And all their loved ones and their friends are standing around saying, no, 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 you don't. It's got you. See, because addiction really is, is that you aren't in control anymore, and that thing that you're addicted to is in control of you. You can't live without it. You find yourself veering there all the time. And so my question is, as you search your heart, and part of freedom is just to be honest and transparent before the Lord, is to allow God to search your heart and say, what are you addicted to? And be honest before Him and let Him shine His light on those areas. And as I said, we live in a, an addiction culture because our culture feeds addiction, doesn't it? Look at advertising. You need this. You have to have this. To be truly happy, you need this. And there's this somewhat unspoken competitive thing that's always out there. And that's, you know, people can be addicted to spending because they want to have the same toys as the guy down the street. you got to have this. You can't live without this. Commercialism, consumerism. Happiness equals this. So what causes our addiction? This is where other sins, and I, and, I, and, I, and I said I'm not doing an exhaustive list in this sermon series, but this is where I said other sins that we talked about intersect with each other. And so what pushes us toward addiction? Sometimes worry can. And we talked about worry last week. When we're living in worry and, and we're worrying about things all the time, sometimes we we will go to something to try to turn that worry switch off, and so we will maybe... Watch hours upon hours of TV and, and just to say, I, I don't want to worry, I want to think about it, so I go to that. And so sometimes the worry can lead to addiction or unresolved conflict. Past relational breakdowns. Unforgiveness can lead us to addiction. Unresolved sin. Maybe past abuse that you haven't dealt with in a healthy way. Maybe verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Bitterness can cause us to go to addiction. Anger. Because what, what addiction basically becomes is a controlling, coping mechanism. 
I don't want to deal with this, and so I will cope with it with this. And that's why you see a lot of people, especially chemical addictions, and you know, we, we, you know, every couple of years we, we have the joy of having the Teen Challenge Choir here, and if you've ever been there, it's such a blessing. But you, know, you hear their stories, and a lot of them, a high, high percentage is there was a breakdown in the family. There is a relational breakdown. Dad wasn't there, mom wasn't there, I was abused. There was something that happened. And then as you get older, that, that stuff doesn't just go away, and so we have to cope with it and deal with it. And so a lot of times it just goes to an addiction to be able to cope. Sometimes justification can lead us to addiction. I deserve this. Or escapism. I talked a little bit about that. We don't want to deal with it, so we just escape into something else. Condemnation can make us go toward addiction. What is condemnation? That's of the enemy. Remember what Paul says uh, in Romans. He said, therefore, there is no, therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Condemnation is to be condemned. It's a difference between that, that Jesus through the Holy Spirit will convict, and that's a wonderful thing. Conviction is a beautiful thing. It's where he shines a light and he says, I want you to get right with me because I want you to have some freedom. I want you to have a refreshing in your soul. What the enemy tries to do is to slide conviction and make it condemnation. Oh, the, the, the Lord just wants to condemn you, to shame you, to embarrass you. We've got to know the difference. But condemnation can send us into addictions. Basically, it's this. We don't know who we are in Christ. We don't know who we are in Christ, and, and, and we feel condemned. So how do we overcome addictions? Because there is hope today. Jesus has come to set us free. He is offering freedom. He's offering himself. But there is hope and there is power to be able to defeat addictions. We don't have to be, again, dictated by these things. The first way is this, surrender to God. Surrender to God. And I know that these will sound like no-brainer things, but I, I want to talk and, and kind of dive into these thoughts a little bit so that we can understand what God feels for us and how we, can un, how we can get to a greater level of freedom, but surrender to God. Romans 6, 12 through 14, that'll be up on the screen. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That word reign there is like, you know, a kingdom. It, 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 it represents royalty. It represents dominion, control. Therefore, do not let sin have dominion or control in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So he's even talking a little bit about, there, about addictions because addiction is you've let sin reign. It has control in your mortal body and so that you are obeying it. Do you see that? You, you begin to obey its evil desires. Most people, they go, I, I, I can't help myself when they're addicted. So I, I want to, and I don't like this about myself, but I can't seem to stop. And he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do, verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. And that's where sometimes we feel like that we have control over most part of our lives, but there's this little part, that little weakness. And he says, do not offer any part of yourself, but rather this, offer yourselves to God. 
Surrender, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is the promise we have in Jesus. Believe this. In Christ, we are brought from death to life. In Christ, we are a new creation. The old is passed away, and behold, we are, you know, we are becoming something new in Christ. In Christ, we can go from death to life. He says, offer yourself to God, to those who have been brought from death to life. And then he says this, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Every part of yourself. For sin shall no longer be your master. There's that, it's kind of a reigning or a dominion or a control word. Sin, when you, when you understand this, this, is what he's saying. When you offer yourself to God, when you go from death to life, and then you offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, then sin no longer has control over you. Because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Knowing who you are in Christ. That we're not controlled by sins. Addictions are in control. Again, where it can even seem somewhat that you are doing this thing and almost watching yourself do it. Offer yourselves to God. This is what it means to surrender to God. And this whole point of surrendering to God. And he says, offer every part of yourself. This is where, again, as you are, are, as you are praying and you are spending time relationally with God, I'm going to talk a bit, a bit about that in a moment. This is where we can offer all, every part of ourselves. Lord, I, I give you my mind. Lord, you know when my mind tends to wander. You know when my mind tends to go to these thoughts that, that seem to have control of me. Lord, I give you my mind. I give you my body. I give you my spirit. As, as, as human beings, we're not just flesh and, and bones. We're spiritual. We're emotional. We're sexual. We're, we, we have this complex makeup that God has created us. And so we say, I've got to give you all those parts of myself. Surrender to him. So that the enemy doesn't have dominion or rule over me. And it comes again to this. Who has the seat of control in your life? Ultimate control. If it's you then sin will be at the door and it can lead again to where you're dictated or addicted to things. So how do you deal with things? What are your coping mechanisms? Do you run to chemicals? Do you run to food? Do you run to technology? Do you run to work? Do you run to spending? Some run to just comfort. Whoever you're running to reveals lordship and, and reveals control. And that's why we take that honest look and say, Lord, I do see the times where I drift. And that's not saying that you're an awful person or that's the condemnation from the enemy. This is not to paint this dark picture, but just to say, honestly, yeah, I see myself veering there. And I want to recognize it because I want to get right with God and I want to be free. And that's where he'll point it, he'll point it out because he lovingly, uh, he lovingly wants to correct you and, and bring conviction and, and, and discipline to our lives. So those are wonderful things. So surrender to God. The next scripture is Acts 3.19. Look at what Peter says. He's preaching to the people. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Repent and turn to God. Surrender to God. Give all that you are to God. As Paul said in, in Romans. We sometimes get the repent part of this passage. You know, when we blow it, we say, God, forgive me. 
God, forgive me. God, forgive me. I'll change. Have you ever said that? I'll change and I'll never do that again. Have you ever made those kind of deals with God? God, if you can help me today and forgive me, I'll never do that again. And that's almost that, that, that tormented approach to relationship with Christ. Because the problem with that is then we, go, we usually go right back into it. Notice that Peter says, repent and turn to God. This is how surrender works. We need to daily turn to God and to, and, and to a life that is surrendered to Jesus. Every day, he set it up that way. A lot of times we go, you know, we treat God as almost like, you know, we go up to the machine and we get the God stuff and we go, I need a little bit of that and this, I'll take that. And we get it, thanks God, I'll be back when I need something else. And God is saying, if you do that, you're going to keep running into the cycle over and over again. Daily, surrendering. God, help me. I love you today. I need you today in relationship with you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. But Lord, now help me to turn to you and walk with you. Because then he says that when you, when you repent... Because literally, repentance means, and he's kind of painting the picture, it's, it's being sorry, but then it's turning to God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just being sorry. He, he, he gives us the definition, repent and turn to God. Then he says this, then times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Refreshing, the thirst quenching. The woman that was at the well, he says, I will give you living water that you'll never thirst again. So turn, surrender to God is, is, is the first one. Number two is be truly accountable. Be truly accountable. Now, what do I mean by that? Are we truly accountable? Do we have people in our lives that we can confess to and bring things to the light? Do you have somebody that you meet with, someone that you can talk to, somebody that you can lay it all out there and say and be honest and say, I'm struggling with this? Because that's what true accountability is. Sometimes we sometimes confess 95% and leave 5% in the darkness. So I'm struggling with this, 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 this. And then there's that little 5% portion, and that's the one that we're dealing with. We go, oh man, if I if I say that, if I confess that, they're they're going to think way less of me. They're going to be disappointed in me. They're going to, it's going to, you know, it's just going to affect our relationship. And, and, and we, and we can, can tend to hide that 5%. That's not truly accountable if you're going 95%. That will not help us get free. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I like that he says to each other. We all need someone, Right? Then he says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when you're getting things right, you are taking on the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's not our good works. It's not how good we can get. Getting right with God doesn't somehow remove our sin nature. We still have stuff and we still have issues. But he says when you're in right alignment, right relationship with me, I put on the righteousness of Christ to cover you. And so then your prayers are effective because you have my righteousness upon yourself. Confess your sins to each other. Do you have someone that you can do that with? If not, I encourage you to do that. You don't have to confess to everyone. 
but have people in your life that you can be truly accountable to. Listen to what they say to you. God can use them to speak to you. I encourage you, um, you know, some people have we're, we're, with their spouse and they, and they have accountability with their spouse. I highly encourage that. My wife is my biggest accountability person. But if, you're, if it's not your spouse, have somebody that is of the same sex. I would not encourage you to have an accountability partner outside your spouse that is of the opposite sex for obvious reasons. But have somebody that's on this journey and can point you to Christ. And that's what this, this thing about the right, of, of, of righteous person, the prayer of a righteous person, it needs to be somebody that's going towards the Lord and can point you to God. In accountability, in true accountability, let, let me just get, have a culture of acceptance. We're all broken and we need Jesus. The church is the fellowship of the broken that need Christ. But have a culture of acceptance. Extend grace, extend mercy as Jesus would. Keep things confidential when they meet with you. There's nothing worse than hearing about your issues from somebody else that you didn't say that to. Because accountability is, is risky, but it's worth it. And he says, James says, so that we might be healed. And Jesus wants us to be healed. As a part of truly accountable, bring things into the light. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Paul says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. He wants that kind of fruit in operation in our lives. This is the fruit of light. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This is what it means to be truly accountable. Have nothing to do with them, but expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Expose these things. Expose them to the light. You know, it's hard to, for sin to hide when things are illuminated. That's why when we play hide-and-go-seek, Remember that game? We don't hide in a brightly lit room. You know, if, if I was going to hide from you guys, I wouldn't stand here and go, okay, go, try to find me. I would try to go find somewhere dark to hide. That's where sin hides in, the, in, in, in our hearts. And he's saying, if it's illuminated, it can't be lit. Expose these things. Expose it for your own freedom and for, your, for the sake of, of your heart and your life. And then he says, wake up and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, sleeper. Because when we're in our sin, we, when we're in our sin, we can be, just be in a stupor and in a spiritual state of sleep. And he says, wake up and rise and Christ will shine on you. When you expose these things to the light, bring them to the light because Jesus wants you to be free. Because at the end of the age, when we stand before Jesus, and it says this, when we, we're all going to give an account, we'll stand before him. And it says, nothing will be hidden. That's a sobering passage. Nothing will be hidden. The little five, four, three, two percent that, that we might try to hide or hold on to is going to be 
exposed. And I say, let's expose it now so that we can stand before him with the least amount of regret because he loves us. Number three, fight the right way for your freedom. Fight the right way. The reason why I say it like that is there are wrong ways to fight. One is by yourself. And I talked a little bit about that. Addictions and the control of sin usually are on people that say, I've got this. I don't need anybody. I'm under control. And that's where you see sometimes those, those, those interventions. If you've ever seen, there, there was a show a while back called Intervention, and then the family is trying to get uh, you know, the, a loved one or a friend, and then they're trying to get them help. And a lot of times is they're sitting there, and the family is saying, you got a problem. We all recognize this problem. And here's one of the problems is we've been enabling you. Because a lot of times we can enable people around us. Or we look, if we're addicted, we look for those who will enable us. And they say, you need to get help. And a lot of times that, that, that initial kickback is what? I'm under control. I can quit any time. Isn't it? I've got this. It's the wrong way to fight by yourself. We were not created to fight these things by ourselves. We need people in our lives, not to be addicted to people, but we need people to tell us the truth. We need to listen to them. Another wrong way to fight is that our fight is against people. Because Paul says our, our, we're wrestling, we're in a spiritual battle, but it's not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. But a lot of times we'll make it about people. So those are just wrong ways to fight. That willpower, I can do this, I've got this, I don't need anybody, I'm tough. That's not noble. So fight the right way for your freedom. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, Paul says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And that's what he's saying. If you're waging war like the world does, that's the wrong way to fight. He said the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So a lot of times he says what you're doing is you're taking the wrong weapons into the fight and they are ineffective and they'll never work. It's like taking a knife into a gunfight. It's not going to bring you good results. And so these, and he's also saying the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, divine power. This is supernatural power. Again, not in and of ourselves, but the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of his word to demolish strongholds. Strongholds is a great word for addictions. To demolish strongholds, to, to demolish addictions. We're in a fight. We are in a fight. We're in a spiritual battle. Jesus said of the devil, he, he says, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, that's not to bring attention to the devil. That's just to recognize that's what he is about. That's what he wants to do, however he can do it. He wants to defeat us, isolate us, lie to us. This is what, this is, you know, his, his tricks are not new in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say that he just begins to lie and make them doubt, make them question God? And he's still working on that with us. He gives us the bait to stronghold sin and addiction. So then what do we do with it? 
So what are our weapons? Number one is immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. Why do I say it that way? Is because, you know, we are called to obey the Lord in what he's telling us to do, but immediate obedience. A lot of times we know what God's asking of us. We're, we know what he wants us to do. Just like a lot of people, if you get right down to it and you say, all right, come on now, be honest. Are you addicted? If they're honestly looking, they'd say, yeah, yeah, I've got, I, I've got some addictions. I think it's the same way as, as, as when you ask somebody and you go, do you know what the Lord has asked of you? Do you know what the Lord has been saying to you? A lot of people go, yeah, I do. I, I, I know that. It, it's, it's something that's been on my heart for a long time, and I know what he's been asking me to do. We know we need to do it. But here's the thing. We keep talking about it. We weigh, we, we weigh it out, the pros versus the cons, you know. We analyze it. But the problem is that we don't put into action what God is asking us and then we deceive ourselves. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really think he's asking me to do that. Because the enemy will give us excuses not to obey God. The other day we were, uh, I was at a, one of our connection meetings for the, our, the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies, who, who our church is a part of. And they had a, a guy who works with churches, and he shared that uh, morning. Um, it was kind of our... Um, you know, it's kind of our devotional, if you will, but it was kind of to encourage us and challenge us as leaders. And, and he says, uh, you know, as leaders and, and as your church. And, and he said this, he said, and he was talking about this idea of obedience. And that's why it just really struck a chord in my own heart. He said, basically it boils down to this. What is God saying? And then what am I going to do about it? What is God saying and what am I going to do about it? We, we think it's enough just to go over and over what God is saying. And what is James says? We must be doers of the word. And one guy that was sharing there, he started laughing. He said, I, have a, he said, I wanted to share something. He said, there was something God was asking us to do as a church. And, you know, it was, it, it, there was, you know, some difficult things, some, uh, some, some decisions that they had to make. He said, I knew what God wanted me to do. I knew it. And he said, so I would meet with my, the guys that I'm accountable with. And he said, I would talk to them about what God is wanting me to do. He said, I know God said it. He said, I did that for six months. And he said, finally, one of the friends, uh, one of his, he said, he said, you know what? You've been telling us this for six months, and you haven't done a thing. What are you going to do? And he said, I, I was mad that he asked me, but I knew he was right. What is God saying, and what am I going to do about it? We must be doers of the world. See, because his, his spirit enables us to obey, and it empowers us to be doers, and that's where we need him. Sometimes obedience will require us to do something drastic as we talk about this thing of addictions. Sometimes obedience will require us to do something drastic. Sometimes we need to turn off our cable. Instead of justifying it and say, well, I've got control over this and I can, that's good, I'm, I'm just going to do this. And then we find ourselves with just hours upon hours. And, and again, I'm not even just talking about bad stuff that you can watch, it's just mindless. But sometimes we need to turn off the cable. Sometimes we need to have access to the internet when someone else is around and we give them the password and we don't know the password to it. And we give them the password. And the only time we'll be on is if somebody that, that will be in the room with us to help us be accountable. Sometimes we have to get counseling. 
or intervention. That we do through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God, a self-intervention and say, I'm going to humble myself instead of having your loved ones and friends tell you that you need to do it. But sometimes obedience requires us to do something drastic. Is God asking you to do something drastic? But this will take humility. We have to humble ourselves. As James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift you up. It's recognizing we don't have the power within ourselves to do this. So immediate obedience is, is one of our weapons. The next one is have confidence in God's word. Have confidence in God's word. I think in a lot of ways we have forgotten how powerful the word of God is. Listen to what Hebrews says about the word of God. This is scripture. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. The Word of God, the Bible, is not a dead document written thousands of years ago. Again, as, we, as I was talking about a little bit about the story earlier, it's not just some ancient writings of, of, uh, of moral lessons about people. It, the Word of God's alive and active. And here's what the writer says, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And I said before, we're in a fight, right? We're in a spiritual battle. And he says it's alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. So when we let the Word of God and we come in, it, it, it is saying this is not right. This is, this is what God wants you to do. And it helps us to make those distinctions. It divides between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And there's the passage where we will give an account to God. And so the word of God is alive. And you know what? The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, he's the one that makes it alive in us. Because it's more than just reading it. It's more than just you know, looking at the pages and going, okay, you know, I don't understand what the, where the power is, is if when we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God and we are reading it and we are putting it in our hearts, it makes it come alive to us. Do we really believe this passage? Do we really believe the truth of that passage? Do we believe, do we live like we believe this passage? It would be like somebody saying, here's some supplements, you know, you're, you're, you're very weak, your muscles have atrophied over time, and, and, you know, let's say you have this condition, and somebody comes to you and they said, I'm going to give you this supplement, but you have to take it every day. You have to take this supplement every day, and it will give you strength, and you will, you will physically feel better if you continue to take it. And then what we do is we only take it once a week. And then we meet with, uh, with, this, the, with the doctor again, and, and, and he says, you know, I, I don't understand. I'm still weak. I'm still, you know, I, I don't have any strength. Well, are you taking the supplements? Yes, once a week. Well, I told you to do it every day. That's the only way it's going to work. And then they come back, and they're still weak. And are you taking it? Yeah, I only do it once a week or twice a week now. I've added another day. And he's going to say, I've told you, this will not make any sense, and your frustration is going to continue if you don't do it every day. The Word of God is alive, and it's intended to be in our hearts every day. 
Again, it's not a, a rules of life guide. It's not the moral walking stick to help us up morality mountain. A lot of times we think that the Christian walk is a hike up morality mountain. And we, we're just trudging and we're trying to be more moral. And that's what God wants us to do is we're hiking up this and, and we're hoping that someday we'll reach the top of morality mountain, that I'm moral now. that I'm some, Guess what? There is no end to morality mountain. It's an exhausting, endless climb. Christianity is not hiking up Morality Mountain. Christianity is about a relationship with a person named Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, the Bible is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's a revelation of Jesus himself. One of the titles of Jesus that says about him, he's the living word. The scriptures reveal him, and that's what makes it so powerful. And this whole sharper than a two-edged sword, if we're in a battle, that sounds like a great weapon to have, doesn't it? So how do we use it? We ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts. We read and ask God, what is he saying to me? That's why the psalmist said, I will hide his word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Not just my head. Ask that Jesus be revealed to you as you read it. Pray it and ask God to speak to you. It's filled with God's promises. Listen to Jesus. And it has power. That's what the writer says. It has power. Don't minimize that. A lot of people just don't know how to use it effectively. It's like they have this weapon, and it's great. Have you ever fired it? Do you know how to use it? No, I don't know how to use it. And that's like the Word of God. We don't know how to use it. And if I could sum it up in one sentence, it would be this. Read the Bible relationally. Read the Bible relationally. We should read it to get to know Jesus more. When you're reading the Old Testament and those passages, you will see, and I'm going I'm to tell you, this is one of the reasons why I'm excited about the story, is even in Old Testament thoughts and themes, we will see Jesus coming out of those pages. That it always pointed us to redemption and him. Read the Bible relationally because he will be revealed to you. There's a place for learning doctrine, and that's good, or doing word studies or memorizing. Those are great, but I don't think that those are the chief reasons we read the Bible. It's a relational book about Jesus. It's a relational book about him. The third weapon is this, pray. This is a part of the supplements. Talk to God every day. Pray relationally. If I could put it that way again. Pray and read. As you read the Bible relationally, pray relationally. It's just like when you're having a relationship with a friend or a family member. The way we talk to them. We don't come to God again to, to have these like moral prayers. These high and lofty prayers. Remember Jesus said, you know, it's not about having the right words, he said the religious, they, 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 they pray in, you know, in public streets to almost kind of like they pray doctrine and they, they want people to be so impressed with them. And, and he says, you know what, this is about a relationship. Pray relationally. Dialogue with him. Scripture can help you pray. Prayer is not about a list of requests or needs or demands. How would that relationship work with your family member, a spouse, if you just said, here is my demands for the day. 
See you later. And it's not wrong that we bring our, our, our requests. It says make your requests known to God, but talk to him relationally. Tell him what you love about him. That's worship. Listen to him. What is he saying? So prayer, like the word of God, is about relationship. It's dialogue, not monologue. It's dialogue. With Monologue is you talking the entire time. Some people say, well, I, I don't hear him. I don't know how to hear God. What is he saying? He is always speaking. A lot of times it's through the word of God. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit revealing his heart. We just have to train ourselves to listen. Sometimes it's those little things that we can miss in a day. And that's why John, or Jesus, in, in, uh, talking to John in the book of Revelation, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He's speaking. Train your ears to hear what he is saying. But do it relationally. So in closing, I, I just want to encourage you today that this is, a, this is a message of hope. Jesus wants us to be free. He wants your loved ones to be free from addictions. And I'm asking you today, is he speaking something to you personally? Is there something he's putting his hand on? Is there something that triggers an addiction? And, and again, a part of recognizing that is just to say, I want, I, I want to come before him honestly because he wants you to be free. What areas do you need to surrender to him or give up control of today? That might be your first step. Just to surrender. God, I surrender that control in that area of my life. I surrender that right to be addicted to that. God, I surrender that person that hurt me a long time ago that now I use as a justification. God, I surrender that moment, that painful thing that seems to dictate my life. I surrender that to you. I give that up to you. So maybe it is surrendering to God in a new way. Maybe it's that you need to be truly accountable to someone, and he's been speaking to you about that. Be connected to the body of Christ. And I encourage you to obey that if he's speaking that. And then maybe it's that you need to fight more effectively. Maybe it's that, that there's some obedience things that he's been asking. You know he's been talking to you about it. Maybe it's radical obedience. He's been speaking to you about turning that cable off or doing something different with the internet or whatever it might be. He, and you know he's asking you. He will give you strength to do it. And then maybe it's just that you need to get more, you need to read relationally and pray relationally, and maybe that struck a chord with you today, and you've never thought about reading the Bible or praying that way, but do it relationally, and you maybe need to start doing that every day, to spend time with him. I'm not, again, the, the rules and the legalism of it is saying, well, you can only effectively pray for 30 minutes or an hour or two hours, that's it. If you, if you, don't, if you do it less than that, sorry. No, it's just... Spend meaningful time with God every day. And it can be in your car. It can be little spurts throughout the day. Some of you, I know you live a busy life and it's hard to set aside a, a block of time, but maybe it's just during the day you just take a moment here and there and just talk to God and listen to him. He loves you and he wants you to be free. So let's close together and pray. Could you stand with me? As I close, too, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for the food at the, uh, the picnic. And as you 
get down there, you can uh, begin to go through the line. Um, there's a few meetings that we're going to be having uh, down there, the children's ministry meeting. And then um, if you are the parent of a teenager, I want to meet with you briefly um, down at the picnic. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll make the call there and as we are there. But will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you that you are speaking today, God, that you use your word, you use um, my broken words. And you, and you speak to our hearts and you're, you put your hands on things because you are merciful, God. You are a loving God. And Lord, even as we would see a loved one, a child or something going towards something dangerous, Lord, you see us and you love us. And sometimes you say, I, wa- I want to I bring you back to myself. I want to bring you here because I don't want you to destroy yourself. Because you have a plan and a purpose for our lives and we thank you for that, God. And I just pray that in a new way today we would open our hearts we would surrender Lord that's such a sometimes can be a, such a scary thing to do is to say Lord I give you control I've been in control I've been calling the shots but Lord I give you control and simply that's what it really means to follow Christ is saying he's in control and I'm not I, I, I'm going to live for him and me not be the one calling all the shots in my life being in control and so Lord I pray in whatever area you're putting your hand on God that we would do that and God hears your heart in the quietness of your own heart right now. Using it, even as you talk to him, you can give him those things. Lord, I pray, God, that we would obey quickly, we would obey immediately, and we would do what you've called us to do, Lord. And if that's a radical obedience to something, we would do it. We would do it with the power of your spirit. And Lord, I pray that we would be accountable, truly accountable to someone have someone in our lives to be able to speak to us and to ask us those questions that we can open our hearts to and shine light in those areas. Lord, we all say right now that we desperately need you. We desperately need your strength. We are broken and we need Jesus every day. I pray that, Lord, we would talk to you. We would read your words. We would love you, and we would do it all in the context of relationship with you, praying relationally, reading relationally, because it's all about you. Pray your strength over your people today. God, we just thank you for even this time coming up of fellowship, God, that we can be together as the family of God. Pray that you would bless the food and that you'll bless our time together as we celebrate together, that we love each other. Lord, again, we thank you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Hope to see you down there. You didn't come prepared to bring food, come anyway.